All right, if you've got your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. That's where we're going to be this morning. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I forgot we were doing Lord's Supper, and so I'm going to try to go as fast as we can since we're getting started a little bit later than normal with the sermon. So hopefully we're not here till 1230 or 1. We might be here long enough, we just have Mexican Fiesta for lunch. I'm joking. So as we, last week we talked about how Jesus foretold his death and he was going to follow that up with uh, some teaching on discipleship. And so this morning as we, as we look at this passage, what we're going to see is what we've seen with so many passages, the disciples ask a question and then Jesus takes this to what he's going to do is show them uh, how as Christians we are to love one another. How we are not to, well how we're to, to serve one another and place each other first. And so let's go ahead and read the passage. I'm going to pray and then we're going to make our way. So start in verse 35 of Mark chapter 10. All right, Mark chapter 10 verse 35 says this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and uh, one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to them, We are able... And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. Thank you for this time. We thank you for your word that is living and active. Father God, I pray that as we spend time studying your word, God, I pray that you would speak through your word, through the Holy Spirit, louder than my voice ever could. Father God, I pray that you would be glorified, God, that you would work in our hearts and our lives uh, by showing us... Any area of self-centeredness in our life and any area that is, that is impacting how we love and serve each other. Father God, I pray that you be glorified during this time that we would be changed from this encounter with you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, so the first thing that we see in verses 35 through 37 is that the disciples have a very self-centered request. And, and this question, this request that they have kind of drives the, uh, the narrative of this story. As they ask this question, Jesus responds, and so it all revolves around what self-centeredness looks like and how that it does not look like how are we to love each other. So verses 35 through 37 says this, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. Now as they come to Jesus, they're asking for these positions of honor. They're asking for these positions of prestige. Now, remember, 
A couple of chapters ago, the disciples confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Christ. They recognized that He was uh, God who had come down in flesh. But they still had not gotten over that hump of understanding that the kingdom that Jesus Christ came to establish was not an earthly kingdom. They were still looking at Jesus being the one who was going to come, sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and rule from Jerusalem. Now, He will do that in the future, but He first came to die for the sins of man. He first came to establish a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, and the disciples have not quite grasped that. In fact, they won't grasp that until the the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. They're still kind of stuck in this middle part where they recognize who Jesus is, but they're struggling with the idea of why he came. And so as they ask to sit on the right and the left, basically they're asking, look, when you come, when you set up your throne here in Jerusalem, we want those positions of prestige and power and authority right next to you. We want to be uh, your right-hand man. You, we want to be second in command. As you're king, as you're ruling, we want to be one step below you. Now, there are two possible reasons that I could think of why they would ask, but, but in reality, they both come from the same heart. It's, it's a heart of self-centeredness. It's a heart of saying, I want what I want. And here are the two reasons I could think of. One, there's a, this idea of self-glorifying. Now, we've talked about how the disciples, there were kind of three who were considered the, the inner circle that were kind of closer to Jesus than anyone else. That was Peter, James, and John. They were there when he rose uh, or brought uh, Jairus' daughter back from the dead. They were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. These were kind of the ones that were the closest to Jesus. And so James and John, knowing that they had, had seen more, had experienced more, that maybe they had a closer relationship with Jesus, maybe they thought, hey, we deserve this. We're better than the rest of these disciples. We kind of deserve a spot higher. And we know that this is kind of part of the direction they're coming from because once the disciples heard that they asked this, they were, they were indignant, it tells us. They were upset. They were angry. This was not a good-natured request saying uh, out of humility. This was a request that came out of pride, that came out of self-centeredness, that came out of, hey, we deserve to be higher than everyone else because of who we are. So there's that self-glorifying, but there's also uh, an aspect of it that's that's self-preservation. Now remember, what we talked about last week, Jesus had told the disciples that once they get to Jerusalem, he was going to die, that the Jews were going to kill him. We talked about how the the disciples knew that once they got to Jerusalem, not only had Jesus told them that, but through their own experience, they knew that the Jews did not like Jesus. Last time they were there, they tried to stone him when he said that he was God. So they know walking into Jerusalem is a hornet's nest. They understand that, yes, Jesus said he's going to die, but we might very well die Or we might die as well. We might, as they string him up or as they kill him, as they crucify him, we might be the next in line. That's why ultimately they all all scatter and they all spread. That's why Peter denies Jesus when he's going through that mock trial three times. Because they are terrified that their life is going to be taken from them because of their association with Jesus. And so I call this self-preservation because I think what they're doing is they come to Jesus as they're saying, look... If Jesus makes this promise to us, if he says that we get to sit on the right hand and the left hand, that means if he dies and he rises again like he said he was going to, that means if we die, we'll get to rise again too. So yeah, we might die, but he's given us kind of that promise that we're going to be risen three days later so that when he sits on the throne, we'll be right next to him. 
Their desire was not necessarily uh, wanting to be close to Jesus. Their desire was not necessarily wanting to do what was right or good or serve others as a leader. Their desire was, I want to protect myself. I want to look out for number one. I want to make sure that once, once everything blows up, I am taken care of. So there's that self-glorifying, that, that self-preservation. So whatever the reason, we understand that it comes from selfishness. It comes from a desire to either glorify themselves or desire to, to put themselves first and do what's best for them. And as we look at self-centeredness, this is kind of the essence of self-centeredness for all of us. If we struggle with self-centeredness, or if there is an, an area in our life where self-centeredness is something that we struggle with, or maybe it even, it even takes the forefront, it comes from either pride, thinking, hey, I'm the best, I'm better than other people at this, I deserve the praise, I deserve the recognition, I deserve the honor, I deserve the glory, or it comes from a place of fear. I don't want to fail, I don't want to mess up, I don't want to be left out, I don't want to be thought of as small or, or not strong enough, so I'm going to kind of push this facade, I'm going to kind of push this, this mask that says, hey, look, I'm big, I'm strong, I'm good, by pushing this, this, this self-centeredness, when in reality we're kind of sitting back here scared, just trying to hide and make sure no one understands how weak we really are. So that's kind of the essence of self-centeredness as the disciples asked Jesus this question. So to combat self-centeredness, we have to recognize our position before God. Now, the disciples, or James and John at least, they think that they can handle what Jesus is going to handle. They, they saw themselves as, as something greater uh, than they really were. They definitely saw themselves as greater than the rest of the disciples, that they deserve the spot more than the other disciples did. That's why they're asking for it. And so if we're going to combat or to combat self-centeredness, one of the things we have to do is recognize our position before God. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to attempt to get them to see that they're not quite as great, they're not quite as big, they're not quite as majestic as they think that they are. So in verse 38, Jesus says to them, Jesus said to them, you do not, uh, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So what we're going to see here is that only Jesus could bear the weight of the cross. So he tells the disciples, you don't know what you're asking. He tells James and John, you don't know what you're asking. As you ask for this, you don't know the, the price that comes with this. You don't understand the weight that's coming with this. You don't understand the full scale of what it is you are asking. And then he asked them if they can drink of the cup and take the baptism that he's going to be baptized. Now, what is that? What is he referring to when he says, can you drink of my cup, be baptized with my baptism? A couple of verses, and they should pop up on the screen. One's Mark 14, 36. This is Jesus in the garden. As he's praying to God, he says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In John 18, 11, when Jesus is being arrested, he says to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? You see, they still don't grasp that Jesus was going to come as a spiritual Messiah. They were still expecting that political Messiah. And look, this is one, one of the reasons why it's so great that God is God and we're not. 
They would have been content with him coming in and being an earthly king, having that earthly crown, and them being able to rule with Jesus for the span of their life. That's what they were content with, that, 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 that Jerusalem or that Israel would be kind of that national powerhouse now. That it would be its own country. They would no longer be under the, the rule of the Roman government. That's what they were content with. But Jesus is saying, no, look, I've got something far greater for you than that. Don't be content with that which is just temporal. Don't be content with that which is just small, understand that something greater is coming. So Jesus told them that he would die, but the cup and the baptism is the purpose behind his death. See, the cup and the, and the baptism is not just the physical death that he was going to suffer on the cross. He told them that he would die and rise again three days later. The cup and the baptism is not just death, although that's what they expected. Remember, we talked about them coming in. They thought that, that was, the, the death was on the horizon. So that's what they were looking at. And they were thinking, yeah, we can die if it means we get to rise again. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. The cup and the baptism is not just physical death. It's everything that came with it while Jesus was on the cross. It's Jesus taking on the, uh, our sin. It's Jesus taking on our punishment. It's Jesus fully satisfying the wrath of God. It's where God took his wrath and he poured it out fully on Jesus for all who would believe so that the, the, those who trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the wrath of God would no longer be aimed at us, that Jesus satisfied it completely. So there's no, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 4.10 and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him who knew no sin, to, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reason why Jesus came, his purpose was to be our propitiation. And all that propitiation means is he fully satisfied God's wrath. So all of God's wrath, his anger, his justice aimed towards our sin. Jesus took all of that so that if our faith and trust is in him, all of that is already forgiven, it's already wiped away, and it's already taken care of. Yeah, Jesus suffered a lot physically with the lashings, with the beatings, with the nails. But what he suffered spiritually was infinitely worse than any physical beating he could have suffered on this earth. Because he took everything that we deserved upon himself so that we could be forgiven. So that we could be the sons and daughters of God. So Jesus endured, or Jesus took the weight of the cross. We are called to endure the cross. In verse 39 and 40, they said to him, we are able. So once again, that tells us they're not fully comprehending everything going on here. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But it is not for, uh, but to sit at my right hand or left, it is not mine to grant, but it's for those who, for whom it had been prepared. So they're still not grasping it. They're still not understanding everything that was about to happen when Jesus died. And so when Jesus tells them that they're going to, to drink his cup and, and, and be baptized with his baptism, it does not mean that they're going to die for mankind. We understand that only Jesus can do that. He was the one that was in all of creation, the only one who could do that, being both God and man. But what he's telling his disciples is, look, because you are mine, because you are light in the darkness, the darkness is going to hate you. Because you are following me, there's going to come persecution. 
And because of that, there is going to be some suffering for the gospel. Now, specifically for James and John, we see it in Scripture. In Acts 12, 2, it says this, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James was the first of the disciples to be martyred for his faith. Then in Revelation 1.9, John writes this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was thrown on this island by himself uh, to live alone as punishment for the gospel. Jesus tells him, yeah, look, there's going to come a time when you do have to suffer for being my disciple. You are going to suffer for being one to follow after me. And in the same way to the disciples, we are called to the same thing. Look, it would be great if the Bible told us that once we became Christians, life was puppy dogs and rainbows from here on. That everything was easy, that everyone loved us, that that everything worked out in our favor. I mean, if that's what it meant to be a Christian, then everyone would want that. But what the Bible tells us is that when we are saved, we are made citizens of a different kingdom. The kingdom of God that that Jesus talks about in Mark. That we are citizens of a different kingdom now. And we are living in this world as strangers and aliens. We are living in a world that is not our home. We are living in a world with a different culture. We are living in a world with different values. We are living in a world with different hopes and dreams. We are living in a world with a different king. And because of that, this world considers us enemies. All throughout the world, Christians are persecuted for their faith. All throughout history, Christians have been persecuted for their faith. Even now, you might not be persecuted physically. We might not have to to suffer uh, uh, death or beheadings or crosses or, or, or the firing range because of our faith, but we do look different And there are times when we do have to endure, whether it's temptations from within inside or temptations from without outside or pressures from outside, things that are striving to move us away from Jesus. We have to endure and to push forward and to know, you know what, this might be difficult in the moment, but God is greater and God is worthy. Let me give you a couple of verses where we're called to endure. Mark chapter 8 verse 34 It says, calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To follow Jesus is not the easiest path. We take up that cross. Romans 8, 17. He says, and if children, then heirs. That means we're we're, we're heirs of God. We're fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And then Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. To endure the cross, we have to recognize the greatness and the goodness of God. Enduring doesn't always have to mean the slings and the arrows that the Bible talks about. It doesn't always have to mean the, the physical persecution. Enduring simply means that if we're going to live as citizens of kingdom while we're living in this world, if we're going to live following our new king instead of following uh, the culture and the, and the direction that our world wants to go, it means that we are going to be light in the darkness. And it means that's going to be difficult. Of course, we're not going the way everyone else goes. We're not walking the, the wide road. We're walking the narrow road. We have have standards that that our world calls uh, antiquated, that our world calls old, that our world says we have progressed past that. And we stand on God's Word, and that can be difficult sometimes. 
And yet if we're going to endure, if we're going to, 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 to stand with God, share in the sufferings like Paul said, that doesn't always mean that we're being, being physically accosted for our faith. A lot of times it means that it's in this internal battle that says, even though my flesh says I want to engage in the sin, even though my culture says this sin is a good thing, I've got to stand with God. I might be pulled this way, I might be pulled this way, but I'm going to stand and walk with God. He is going to be my guideline. He is going to be my standard. He's going to be the one that I strive to follow and obey and to trust. And he's going to be the one that I'm worshiping and living my life for. And every single day, we have a battle from temptations outside and from temptations inside that want to pull us off that track, that want to pull us away from God, that want to make us citizens of this world again, or at least live like citizens of this world again, instead of living like a citizen of heaven. And we have to endure that. We have to say, you know what? My God is worth me saying no to my sin. My God is worth me saying no to temptation. My God is worth me saying no to peer pressure. My God is worth me looking like an outsider to my culture because I choose to to live by the standards that God has set rather than the standards that our culture changes every five to ten years. I'm standing with God, and there are some times we have to endure to push forward. That can be difficult, but we do so because we recognize who God is and what God has done for us. That in His perfection and in His power, He has loved us so much that even though we did not deserve it, He has loved us so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross to be that propitiation so that we might have life. So if we're going to combat self-centeredness, the first thing we've got to do is recognize who God is. Second, if we're going to combat self-centeredness, we have to embrace God's call to love others. Now, as we've seen throughout Scripture, or as you see throughout Scripture, as you read it, study it, God, God put so much with loving Him to loving other people. That if we're going to, to, to love God, then we have to love others. 1 John is all about this. 1 John is all about how, how we are to love other people. Now, that's a reflection of us loving God. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are linked. They are, they are linked, and we cannot break that link. And so if we are going to battle self-centeredness, we've got to embrace God's call to love others. If I'm going to love someone, that means I'm putting their value, their worth, their needs above my own. If I'm going to love my children, if I'm going to love my wife, then I'm going to place them above myself. That is the exact opposite of self-centeredness. Self-centeredness says I'm going to place myself first and they're going to be lower on my list of priorities. So if I'm going to love, I've got to flip that. I flip that by embracing God's call to love others. Let's look at verses 41 through 42. In this, we're going to see that self-centeredness moves us to abuse our relationships. It says, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them and said to him, and said, or called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So, In this, what Jesus is doing is he's taking the request of James and John and he's lining it up and is setting it equal with how the Gentiles lead. 
Look, James and John, you were selfish in your request. You were self-centered in your request. Look, here's how the Gentiles lead. They lord it over them. They, they abuse their authority. They place themselves first. They want that power because they want to be above everyone else. They take that power because they want to use it to get what they can get, to do what they want to do, and it's all about them. James and John, you request, they're equal. They're the same thing. They come from the same heart. They come from the same spot. And yes, he's talking specifically about he's talking specifically about Christian leaders, but I think this truth is also I think it's also pertinent for Christian relationships. That if we're to love each other, then we have to come from a heart of of I'm going to seek what is best for you, not a heart that says, hey, I'm going to do what's best for me. That The Gentile leaders, they use their authority to, to manipulate things to get what they wanted. They abuse the relationship with those underneath them to get what they wanted. Self-centeredness causes us to abuse our relationships, our friendships, our marriages, our, our being a parent to a child, our work relationships. It causes us to abuse our relationships to get what we want. That people become a tool that instead of us loving them, they are simply a tool for us to get what we think we deserve or to get what we want. And so when Jesus is making this This connection, that's what he's doing. And that's what he's telling James and John. He's telling them, look, your desire, your question, what you're seeking from me. You're living the exact same way these Gentile leaders are. Verse 43 through 44, he says this. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Christian relationships are about serving others and seeking their benefit. Now, once again, Jesus is specifically talking about leadership. And so, yes, when you look at a pastor, when you look at deacons, when you look at Sunday school teachers, when you look at people that are, that are teaching uh, in ministries or any type of leadership... There should be this attitude of servanthood, whether it's serving from the pulpit by preaching, whether it's serving by teaching, whether it's serving by mopping, whether it's serving by cleaning, whatever that is, there should be an expectation on believers that we are, our leaders are are loving and serving those that they have been given charge over. But at the same time, the same truth applies to the church, that as we are striving to love each other, that we are serving each other, that as we come together to worship, as we come together to fellowship, as we come together together to, to serve or to do ministry together, that we are doing this in an effort to love and serve each other, that we are doing this in an effort to see each other grow and mature in our faith. Let me read you a, a verse out of Colossians chapter 1, or two verses. It's verses 28 through 29. It says this, Him, that's being Jesus, says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Look, that's the goal of the church, that we are all working together to see each other uh, presented mature in Christ. That our goal as we come together in the service and Sunday school classes, as we come together to to fellowship together, uh, while we're eating a Mexican fiesta, as we're coming together, we are encouraging and loving and serving each other, hoping to see each other mature in Christ. That's the goal of the church. That's one of the reasons why we are here is to come alongside of each other and to see us matured as believers. 
You cannot do that if you're being self-centered. You can only do that if you're choosing to love and serve other people, which is what Jesus called us to do. He said in connection to the Gentile leaders, he said, but that's not you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then Jesus shows us how he perfectly exemplifies this. In verse 45, it says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus brings this full circle. That first question came from a heart of, Hey, Jesus, exalt us so that we'll be safer. Exalt us because we deserve it. Exalt us because we are worthy. We want to be the greatest. We want to be seen in front of everybody else. And Jesus says what you should really be doing is seeking to serve. And Jesus modeled that and showed that by serving the world, by showing God's love, by dying on a cross. Jesus came to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give His life to be the propitiation that we might have life, that our sins might be wiped away. He did not come to be served, but to serve. James and John came saying, hey, put us first so that we're above everybody else. Jesus says, look, If you really want to be a leader, if you really want to show the love of God, if you really want to make an impact in the church, then lower yourself down. And not only am I going to command you to do that, but I'm going to model that for you. I'm going to show that for you, that I'm God in the flesh, and yet I'm not here to be served, but I'm here to serve you and to give my life for you so that you might have forgiveness, that you might be saved, that you might be adopted into God's family. And I believe that offer is made for all. That Jesus Christ came to die to show God's love to the world. That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that anyone who goes to God and says, God, I am a sinner. I need to be saved. God, I am a sinner and I understand that I cannot save myself. God, I am a sinner and I understand that apart from you, all I have is judgment. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord and asks Him to please save me, please forgive me of my sins. Please satisfy the wrath of God aimed at me. The Bible says that he will hear us and he will answer us. That all who call the name of the Lord will be saved. As Christians, there's an expectation on our life. If we are going to be disciples of Jesus, that we are fighting against the natural self-centeredness that that exists in our life, that, that tries to fight for control, And we are loving others and serving others and placing others before ourselves. James and John model the opposite of that. They model self-centeredness. They model wanting to exalt yourself above everyone else. Jesus called them out on it and made the disciples mad. That never brings us anywhere closer to Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, was the one that deserved praise above anything else that has ever been on this earth. And He came to serve And to be a ransom for many. I pray that it is our goal as believers, as we are disciples of Jesus, to fight against the self-centeredness that might rage in our hearts or that might take over aspects of our life, that we would strive to love as God has loved, that we would strive to love as Jesus has loved by dying for us. Let's pray.